From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. Following a slow start to the hurricane season, Hurricanes Fiona and Ian left many without electricity or even a house to return to after the storm. This week we're joined by National Public Radio's Miami correspondent, Greg Allen, who has been covering the hurricanes. Allen got a start on radio in Pennsylvania, where he hosted a weekly folk music program. After work at several NPR member stations, Greg transitioned to work at national shows, including Morning Edition and Talk of the Nation. Before becoming a correspondent based in Florida, he worked for four years as a Midwest correspondent. Later, remembering country icon Loretta Lynn, she died yesterday at the age of 90. She's best known for her autobiographical song, Coal Miner's Daughter, which is the same name of her first memoir. Then we'll listen back to my 2021 interview with science writer David Quammen. I talked to him about his book Spillover, which is about zoonotic diseases or diseases that come from animals. He has a new book out called Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus, and it's a finalist for the National Book Award. It's Wednesday, October 5th, and this is News Nerds. NPR's Miami correspondent Greg Allen has been working with National Public Radio and NPR member stations for more than three decades as an editor, producer, and now NPR's only correspondent in Florida. He's been covering Hurricane Ian from on the ground, and he's joining us now to discuss the aftermath of the hurricane. Thank you so much for being with us. Sure. So uh, how did you fare in the in the hurricane? And, and there's still flooding and, and heavy rain. How are you right now? Oh, I'm fine. I'm back in my I'm back in Miami now. Um, and during the storm, we were in uh, St. Petersburg, which at the time we thought was going to be where it was going to land. When we first got there, after we we got in there on Tuesday, uh, myself and a couple other uh, members of our team, then we uh, realized the storm was shifting south. Um, but it was kind of too late to relocate at that point. So we covered it by driving down each day from St. Petersburg down to the Fort Myers area, and so we did that for the for the while I was there and I, I just came out on uh, Sunday. Right. Cause the, the path of the hurricane was projected to uh, be different than how it actually played out. Um, but, you know, speaking of that and how the, the, the path of the hurricane or the projected path kind of changed, how well do you think Floridians were prepared for Ian? Well, you know, um, it's a, it's a question that comes up after every hurricane. Um, and there's really significant questions being raised now, especially in Lee County, where we've got most of the fatalities and there was a delay. Clearly, there was a delay in ordering an evacuation uh, for by 24 hours from what uh, what their own guidance suggested they should do. Um, we could talk more about that, but um, th- there's questions being asked about that. And both state and local officials are being kind of defensive about it and saying they made the right call. But I think that there's probably little question if if you talk to other, uh, more objective people that if you're going to have a, a four to seven foot storm surge, then people should be evacuated from the zones that were closest to the water. And they weren't ordered. And that even though we knew about that storm surge by Monday morning, they, the evacuations were ordered until Tuesday. So that's that's the main question about preparation. Beyond that. Floridians, you know, we've had a lot here. And so it's it's not surprising when you when you go to a place like that, you see how many people have generators, how many people have water. I mean, the basic life necessities, I think most people who experience a hurricane in Florida are prepared. They're, they're prepared to keep themselves alive with food and water and that kind of thing. But people are never prepared for the amount of destruction. And people are always surprised that, that their homes flood. 
Um, it's so it's very typical in a situation like this. People say, you know, we've never flooded before. We didn't expect this. And you see that over and over again. So, you know, there's there's a certain level of preparation, but there's some things you never can prepare for. Yeah. You were mentioning Lee County. Do we know why officials in that county were uh, didn't act uh, sooner? You know, it's up for them to, to really des- describe it. I think that, you know, in hindsight, it's very clear what should be done. And I think in the, in the heat of the moment, it's harder. One factor I think has to be, and this is what one of the county commissioners said to the New York Times, one factor has to be that kids were in school on Monday. They had school on Monday. And uh, they thought the hurricane was going north. They would have to do hurricane preparation, but they thought they had plenty of time. So if you have... And schools are what are what most of these use shelters. So if they did order a mandatory evacuation, they didn't have a really as as the typical number of shelters they could send them to. They would have had to make other plans. So that might have been a factor, something suggested by one of the county commissioners. But beyond that, I can't say. Um, you you did some uh, inter- interesting reporting and just reporting that I felt was just so sad about this couple who had their house flooded and a boat actually ended up in their house. What were some of the other stories from people that you talked to um, that had seen the effects of Ian? Well, you know, most of the stories we, we, we spent, you know, it's, it's interesting where you go. I mean, you, you get the saddest stories when you talk to people when you go to a shelter where people are staying because they have no place to stay. And that was, I mean, the, the folks, the, the the Heltons who I met, where I met actually at a hotel where they were staying. Um, most of the time when I was there, we were actually going into communities where, which were hard hit. And there you had people who were trying to clean up. A lot of places I saw people were, uh, had parts of their roofs, their ceilings collapse in the town of Inglewood. I saw this over and over again. Water just kind of, they didn't get flooded there, but the water just came in at such, was was forced in, the heavy rains were forced in by the winds and it just soaked people's ceilings and the ceilings collapsed. The water came in through the eaves. So that was a real mess for people. Uh, did, did a lot of, the winds did a lot of destruction there. Uh, Cape Coral was one of the many communities we visited that were just flooded dramatically. Um, people got a, anywhere from a few inches to a, to a few feet of water. Um, and so the, everything was ruined. So that in those cases, it was mostly people kind of kind of cleaning up and, and trying to come back as I was in the communities. But then you'd go one we spent a lot of time in the town in Charlotte County, just north of Lee County. And the surprising thing that happens after hurricanes often, and it happened in this case, is that you have river flooding afterwards. So the, the hurricane goes by, people say, well, we escaped that one. And then days later, their homes will flood. And, we, and we've seen that in, in previous hurricanes. And that we saw a lot in Northport. People just shocked and they and just, and just they were forced out of their homes. And in some cases, the, the flooding there went several feet high. Um, and I'm, I don't think it's gone down yet. So it started to recede this week. And so we'll, I don't know what the current state is. So the, those are the, the hardest stories. People just who think that they've gotten through the worst of men are, are basically waiting for a, someone in a boat to come and rescue them. And we, we saw that a lot there in, uh, in Southwest Florida. Have you seen any indication that people um, whose houses have been destroyed or, um, you know, damaged in some way, have you seen any indication that they're going to think about you know, ways to build rebuild that would lessen damage in, a, in another hurricane? Is that something that builders or developers are thinking about? 
Uh, for sure. And I think that's actually a story to be followed up on because there are, in some cases, I was surprised we went to some communities and the, the I was surprised the level of destruction wasn't greater. We've all seen pictures of places like Fort Myers Beach and others where the things are just leveled. But even on Fort Myers Beach, there's some buildings that came through it. And there's some communities that did well. And, and what we've seen is uh, like uh, communities, I, I guess is in Cape Coral I went through, I was surprised that so many buildings did well. They were concrete construction and clearly very few roofs were missing. And then with four hours of 140 mile per hour winds, you'd think that would be enough to really devastate some houses. But I was surprised the level number of houses that did well there because they were built under kind of later construction codes. Um, so I think definitely you'll, you'll see um, changes to the building codes as a result of this. I think that Southwest Florida did better than say uh, Florida's panhandle several years ago when Hurricane Michael hit there, the level of destruction there to me, uh, at least the communities I went to was much greater. Um, and I think because the the, the, the the construction techniques there were were much less rigorous than they were, are in the, the peninsula, the part the, the Southern part of Florida, which has always had two different kind of set of building standards. So uh, the, the standards in the panhandle became much more uh, rigorous, much, much more like the rest of Florida after Hurricane Michael. And it would not surprise me that we'd see further, uh, you know, uh, refinements down here in, in the in Southwest Florida and the rest of Florida after this too. You, you were talking about the Heltons, who were, was the couple that uh, we, we were mentioning, and they were saying that they might want to move to Texas um, because of the hurricane. How many people have you talked to that uh, actually think have thought about leaving Florida or relocating in, in a place that they wouldn't have to deal with this? It, I don't know. I, I've had that question from one of our someone else, sir, and I've, I've not run into anybody that I mean, I think that the Heltons were doing it because they they had an offer from their son. And and but, you know, uh, you do see a lot of people leave South Florida after a while, because I think actually more than the hurricanes, it's things like housing costs. And 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 uh, I think number one is housing costs, but then other things like traffic oh. and stuff, you know, um, it can be it can be a difficult place to live in hurricanes are part of it but but my sense is that you know when you live through a hurricane you kind of uh, think that that's it you don't kind of think oh i'm gonna have to rebuild and then we're get hit by another one next year and which is you know a reasonable way to think i mean it's possible if you got hit by a hurricane once you're gonna hit again but typically i just don't find people think that way um and this is good gets to the larger issue about sea level rise people ask me questions about that and i don't see people actually saying oh i'm leaving florida because flooding is more more likely even though we hear time and again people say oh i never thought my home would flood and here it flooded in this hurricane you know so but no i just don't see that as a factor and you know maybe it should be but i don't i don't see it how are rescuers and and people that are going door to door searching for people that might be stuck or or just in bad situations how are they working with the loss of infrastructure we've seen photos of of highways that have just and roads that have uh, been flooded over, and that just must be just a setback for for people who are trying to look for survivors. Yeah, I think I think the worst of the of the rescues or the the height of the rescues are, are over now because I think the, the flooding has subsided somewhat and is is subsiding, and people have gotten out. It's really now the uh, uh, they're trying to I think wrap up the uh, the search and rescue the where you actually go to recover. Uh, fatalities. I think we don't know what the fatalities, the total is going to be. It's actually higher than I would have thought. Um, uh, right now, we're over 100. Um, I heard the uh, emergency manager, uh, the, the state emergency manager, uh, Kevin Guthrie, kind of suggests that he thinks that we've kind of, that number's kind of topped out. 
hard to know because they are still going door to door. At this point, they're looking for um, for people for remains for fatalities as opposed to survivors. I think is the is the place where we're at right now. So we will see how how deadly the storm was, but it's certainly deadlier than we thought. And it does again get back to that issue about whether people were prepared and they evacuated early enough. And uh, you've also been uh, covering the the hurricane in Puerto Rico, Fiona. Um, and I'm wondering what's the latest on both the Florida and Puerto Rico's power grid. Well, uh, Florida is doing better. I'm I'm a little bit. I've been off for a few days, and then last time I was I was got a briefing from one of our our people, and they it, it seems like it's coming back on in Fort in Lee County is the, the hardest hit part, Lee and Charlotte counties, and it seems like it's about you know halfway back at this point. Today they talked about the water. The water is flowing again in, in Lee County, which is kind of key also. Um, some ways having running water is more important than than uh, electricity for people to live, be able to live in their homes. But um, Puerto Rico also, there's been good progress in, in that storm. You know, it's, it's funny, if you look back, Fiona did a lot of damage and had knocked the entire grid out in Puerto Rico but it was not that powerful of a storm and they didn't it didn't do a lot of structural damage the way that uh say maria did and so they were able to they were they were able to come back i don't know what the current uh, you know numbers are there but it, is, it has mostly been restored there as i understand it and in florida the restoration is is you know going pretty quickly by all accounts in most places but then you've got the places where there was severe infrastructure damage particularly the the barrier island sanibel uh, Fort Myers Beach and Pine Island, and there there's going to be, have to be a total rebuild, and it could be quite some time before people get their power back there. So, that, and besides that, you've also got the other infrastructure problems there, the uh, the bridges in in Puerto Rico. We didn't see that the great damage to infrastructure because that the hurricane was, although there was a lot of rain and it didn't knock people off power, it didn't do that much destruction compared to some earlier hurricanes like Maria. And there's there's it's going to be a you know a period of rebuilding and and kind of reckoning with the uh, hurricanes. Um, where are, is the funding coming from um, for both Ian and Fiona? Well, uh, typically after these, I mean FEMA keeps a pretty good uh, fund so they can respond to hurricanes. And then what happens typically after this is then there's a request that goes to Congress for supplemental funding, and uh, that becomes a political issue. In some cases, in the past. There's been a, a feeling by uh, some um, conservatives, people who are concerned about the, the the national debt and the deficit, that that people shouldn't be bailed out by the federal government, by the taxpayers shouldn't bail out people who choose to live in risk very risky areas. We've seen that reasoning in the past. It happened with Hurricane Sandy. There was questions about that because it affected the Northeast and some elected officials, some members of Congress who felt like the money shouldn't be allocated there, voted against it. It did pass. They always end up passing. I mean, I've never heard heard of a supplemental uh, appropriation for FEMA that has not ultimately passed, but there's usually, there can be a lot of politicking and jockeying around it. Um, we'll see if that happens this time. The fact that this is basically a red state, you know, a, a Republican governor, Republican legislature, um, and they're very much in favor of it. Our two uh, senators, uh, Rubio and, and Scott, are in favor of it. So I would think it should pass pretty easily this time. It'll be interesting also if they put the two together 
haven't I haven't really looked into that if that's if that's likely, but that wouldn't surprise me. And then that would make it even easier for Puerto Rico to get their money as well. So, um, and under, you might recall that back under the in the Trump administration, there was a lot of questions about the money. Money was allocated for Puerto Rico, but then it was held up, went came out very slowly. And there's even questions now about how much of it was actually dispersed. Um, so there's always a lot of politics involved in how this uh, FEMA money, the federal money, is is sent to these uh, storm battered areas. What about the economy of Florida? It's, um, you know, there's a lot of tourism that that goes into Florida. It's it's known for, um, you know, being a, a place that many tourists go. How is that going to be affected? Well, I think it it, it it shouldn't be affected badly at all. In fact, it, in some ways, it's it's it could actually draw attention to these areas, um, reminds people about them. I mean, certainly on southwest Florida, those those three barrier islands we mentioned, particularly uh, Sanibel and Fort Myers Beach are big economic engines for, for that area. Um, they're widely known and, and very popular resorts. Also on Santa Bella is Captiva. And those are kind of uh, high-end resorts that that uh, that bring a lot of people from all their countries. So those are going to be out of commission for quite some time. That's a regional issue. Beyond that, I think that uh, Florida's tourism did very well during the COVID pandemic. And it's kind of done continue to do well so it it's it shouldn't be hurt i don't think dramatically by this except for that regional that that area there greg thank you so much oh it's my pleasure That was National Public Radio's Greg Allen sharing his reporting about Hurricane Ian. Country star Loretta Lynn, known for her semi-autobiographical songs addressing the struggles of the working class and some of the taboo subjects of the time, has died. She was 90. If you think about Loretta, you might see someone who embodied the rural South and whose work was seen as an anthem of determination, rural pride, and honesty. Born on April 14, 1932, Loretta Webb was a coal miner's daughter growing up in Kentucky with seven siblings. Loretta would sing with her siblings, including at church and other gatherings. She wasn't the only one in the family to pursue a career in music. In fact, four out of the eight Webb children grew up to be musicians. Soon after her marriage to Oliver Lynn Jr. at just 15, she became a mother and the family moved away from Appalachia to Washington, where she ended her 10-year hiatus from public appearances and recorded four songs for a small record label in Vancouver, Canada. As her work became more popular, the Lynns moved to Nashville, where she joined the Grand Old Opry and began a decades-long dedication to the Opry. In 1962, Lynn dropped her first top ten single, which would be the first of more than 50 to make it to the top ten chart, including 16 singles that reached number one. 
Perhaps one of her best-known songs, however, is Coal Miner's Daughter, which was inspired directly by Lynn's upbringing. Her first memoir used the same title, and a documentary adapted from the book soon followed. Over the course of her career, Lynn was named Artist of the Decade by the Academy of Country Music, inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame, won multiple Grammys, and won a Presidential Medal of Freedom, which was presented to her in 2013. In 2004, she came back into the spotlight, recording the critically acclaimed album Van Leer Rose, which won her two Grammys. Then, in 2007, she began recording several albums with Johnny Cash's son, Carter Cash, remembered not only as an icon, but as a musician who was not afraid to sing the truth, Loretta Lynn died Tuesday at 90. When they lay me down someday, my soul will rise and fly away. This old world will turn around. I'll be at peace when they lay me down. This life isn't fair, it seems It's filled with tears and broken dreams Finally today, an excerpt of my interview with science writer David Quammen. His new book, Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus, is about the world's fight to control COVID-19 and how zoonotic diseases like COVID can be studied. It's based off of almost 100 interviews with scientists and virologists from around the world. So there's an amazing, amazing research that, that went into this book and you talked to the people involved in these cases of disease. What was the process of researching the Spillover book? Well, Spillover took me about five years and I did a lot of travel. I traveled to China, the Congo, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Australia, Butte, Montana, I can't, Berlin, I can't remember all the places that I traveled to, mostly with scientists who study viruses that fall out of wild animals, who study this subject of, it's called zoonotic diseases, uh, animal infections that are transmissible to humans. And that's what the book is about, Spillover. Animal infections that are transmissible to humans and can cause pandemics. So I spent probably three years out of the five years traveling around the world, climbing into caves in China, climbing onto rooftops in Bangladesh with scientists who were trapping bats to sample them for dangerous viruses, or, or that were trying to tranquilize gorillas to look for evidence of Ebola virus, or sampling fruit bats in Australia to find evidence of, of Hendra virus. It was very interesting. These are heroic, courageous people. And it was uh, a lot of fun and, and exciting to go into the field, into the wilds with them and watch them do their work. And then I came home and I spent two years writing the book. As I, I read more, I was like, this is some creepy stuff. You must, you must have been really into these to the, the topic of infectious disease. W what was your inspiration for Spillover? Well, you know, my interest, Ezra, started about probably 25 years ago, maybe more, when I first read about Ebola virus, this terrible virus that kills people and makes them very sick in Africa, usually in African villages. And no one knew where this virus came from. It had to live in some wild animal that's what they call the reservoir host. That's where a virus lives when it's not infecting humans. 
that spills out of its reservoir host and get in, gets into humans and then causes an outbreak. So Ebola was causing these terrible outbreaks and nobody knew which animal it came from. And then National Geographic commissioned me to walk across the Congo with a biologist who was doing an epic survey hike across the last great dense forests of Central Africa, including the Congo Basin. And we walked through Ebola habitat and we knew it was Ebola habitat because there had been a human outbreak on the edge of this forest block. So for 10 days, we were in our sandals slogging through the swamp and the forest in this block where we knew Ebola was there somewhere in the forest. And that's what got me really interested in Ebola, reading about the dynamics, the reservoir host that it lives in, the spillover into humans, the the question of um, of how it adapts to a new host, humans instead of bats or whatever. And I realized that this was all ecology and evolutionary biology. It was the ecology and evolutionary biology of scary viruses. And I had been writing about ecology and evolutionary biology of big creatures. And so it was natural for me to make that transition and say, oh, okay, now I want to write about the ecology and evolutionary biology of scary viruses. You mentioned that there's a, a something called a reservoir host, and then the reservoir host goes on um, to, to spark this chain of events. What, what is this chain, and how can the reservoir host infect a human? And then there's another, okay. there's another like in Hendra virus, it had to be transmitted to another animal before, before infecting humans. What is that process? That's right. Okay, um, let's walk through that. Hendra virus in Australia is a textbook case. Most people have never heard of it. It's a very dangerous virus, but it doesn't spread from human to human well. So it hasn't caused epidemics or pandemics, but it does kill people. Here's what happens with Hendra virus. It lives in giant fruit bats in Australia, in northern, northeastern Australia. Uh, and if you leave the fruit bats alone, you're safe from the virus. But humans have colonized Australia. We've brought in our livestock, we've brought in sheep and cows, we've brought in horses, not native to Australia. We've cut down forests where these fruit bats lived. And so now the fruit bats, having lost much of their habitat, are going to places where they can find fruit, like orchards, like city parks, closer to humans. They do that, sometimes there are fig trees, for instance, humans plant fig trees maybe in a pasture. So here's how the first outbreak of Hendra began in 1994. A horse in a pasture got very sick. The horse was shading herself underneath the fig tree. Fruit bats were coming to the fig tree. They were eating the figs. They were dropping the fruit pulp and they were dropping their feces and their urine onto the grass. The horse ate the grass, got infected with the virus, the horse trainer took her back to the stables where she was kept with a two dozen other horses and they all started getting sick, foaming at the nostrils, foaming at the mouth, falling down, having seizures, terrible sickness, spreading this virus from one horse to another. Three men tried to take care of these horses, the horse trainer, a veterinarian and a stable hand, and two of them got sick with this virus. One of them died in hospital and the other one barely recovered. And the third one was the veterinarian and he's the one who told the story to me. So fruit bats are the reservoir host of this terrible virus, Hendra. Um, horses are the amplifying host 
it doesn't generally pass straight from bats into humans. It passes from bats into horses. And horses get very sick. The virus explodes in horses. They can spread it from one horse to another. Humans come in to try and help, and then humans get sick. But then humans, so far, have not been known to spread it from one human to another. So that's the particular ecology of the Hendra virus. And you mentioned that bats are the reservoir host, and that is, that is the case of probably COVID and other viruses. Many mm -hmm. viruses have bats as the reservoir host. Why are bats uh, a, a reservoir host to many viruses? That's right. Hendra virus, Nipah virus in Malaysia and Bangladesh, SARS-1 from China 2003, they all have the reservoir host in bats. Marburg virus in Africa, probably Ebola virus, we're not sure, probably the COVID-19 virus. So the question is why bats? A couple of reasons. First of all, bats seem to be overly represented as reservoir hosts, but bats are very, very diverse. There are 1400 species of bats. That's one in every five species of mammal. So if one in every five species of dangerous virus comes from bats, that's just proportional representation of their diversity. But they live a long time. They can live up to 30 years. They gather together, they roost together in dense aggregations. There might be 60,000 bats roosting together on the wall of a cave. Those are good circumstances for circulating a virus endlessly in a population of bats. They live a long time and they, they gather close together. So the virus keeps going around from one bat to another. And they have immune systems that are less reactive to foreign elements, foreign molecules, foreign forms of life in their body than the immune systems of, of humans or of most mammals. Why are their immune systems less responsive? Possibly because they, they fly. They're the only truly flying mammal. That puts enormous physiological stress on their bodies that releases certain kinds of molecules in their bodies, unstable free radical molecules. And if they had very sensitive immune systems, their bodies would be reacting to those molecules constantly and they would have autoimmune disease. So it seems, this is still somewhat uncertain, but it seems that over time, bats have evolved to have less responsive immune systems so that they don't have autoimmune dysfunctions all the time uh, in response to their physiological stress. And, and one result of that is that they can carry viruses and their immune systems tend to ignore the viruses. That was my interview with David Quammen, which I recorded in early 2021. David's new book, Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus, came out yesterday and is a finalist for the National Book Award. I would encourage you to head to our website, newsnerdspodcast.com, to listen to the rest of our interview. I learned so much, and I think you will too. News Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com, where you can catch up with episodes that you missed, subscribe to our newsletter, play our daily mini-crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash 
support-kgvm. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.